0: Jesus never violated one of God's laws, including his Sabbath law, but he violated all the time these man-made traditions that were added to the law. 17, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now that word refreshed comes from the word breathe. So we could translate it very literally as God caught his breath. That's a literal valid translation that in six days God made heaven and earth and on the seventh day God caught his breath. So it's a good translation was was refreshed, but very literally God saying on that day, I caught my breath on that day. I took a breath. And so therefore, I want you to keep this day holy. I want you to honor this day. I want you to refrain from regular work on this day because this is the day in which I caught my breath. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But we see that in Exodus, I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 13, here's the way God wants His people to think of this Sabbath. He says, you shall call the Sabbath a delight. God wants His people to think of this day as something that's not burdensome, but in fact, something that's the opposite, the polar opposite of burdensome. He wants His people to think of this day as a delight. The sign between God and His people is this day, And he wants his people to think of this day as the day in which he caught his breath and they see that as delight. So these pieces will begin falling together for us a little bit later. But before we go there, let's now notice what has happened to this day. This day, which is the most important covenantal sign between God and his people. This day, which represents a command from God towards his people that is unlike any of the other commands. This day that was above all other days to be unburdensome has been made to be, and get this, the most burdensome day of the week. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees and religious rulers, what they did with God's law, and this won't be new new information to probably any of us, but what they did with God's law was they took God's law and they added on top of it the traditions of man, which was began in sort of a, a good way, with good motives at least, to say we want to make sure that we keep the law of God. So we want to sort of put a hedge around it or sort of this protective barrier around the laws of God so that we can say to ourselves, if we can make sure we keep these, then we're certain we're keeping God's laws. Kind of like if God's law was A and they put around A, you know, a, A1, A2, A3, A4, A5, A6. If we make sure that we keep all the little A's, then we're going to be certain that we're keeping the big A. Maybe started out with a good motive. But what happened was all of God's laws got surrounded by these man-made traditions. These man-made traditions were all compiled in a document known as the Talmud. I'm sure you've heard that word before. The Talmud was this collection of all the rabbinic teachings rabbinic rabbi that was just the teachings of the rabbis how the rabbis taught this is how you understand this law this is what you do to keep this law etc 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 well the talmud contains no less than 24 chapters of laws and regulations involving the sabbath far and away more than any other law so what happened was it was almost like a bullseye target that the the Pharisees and the scribes zoned in on this commandment and built around this commandment such an unimaginable barrier of manly com- man-made commands, not manly, but man-made commands around the command to honor the Sabbath, that the day was turned into from a delight into an extraordinary burden. Because remember, to violate the Sabbath is death. Now we have all these additional regulations also carrying the same penalty. So I'm sure you've heard of many of these before. I'll just give you a few examples just to remind ourselves of the absurdity of what the day had been turned into. So the command, let's not forget the command. This is important. Remember the command. The command is do no ordinary work and honor the Lord. Honor this day, honor the Lord, and do no ordinary work. That's the command. So then this do no work, what does it mean to do no work? Well, maybe taking a journey is doing work. Well, what's a journey? How far can you go before you take a journey? So then the Pharisees and the scribes, they all thought about this, and they said, okay, 1,999 steps. Step number 2,000 is a journey. That's work. If you take step 2,000, you die. But you can take steps one, one through 1,999, and that's not a journey. That's called a Sabbath day journey, by the way, a Sabbath day journey. So there was this journey of 1,999 steps that you could take. One more would, would be death. Or, for example, uh, even like if you were to take a bath, a bath was pro- prohibited on the Sabbath. You couldn't take a bath. Because if you took a bath, you might splash some water out on the floor and that water might clean that little spot of the floor cleaner than the rest of the floor and that would be work because you clean the floor, you see? Or it even morphed into this thing that you can't even be tempted to work. So the command is do no work, do no ordinary work. But now we want to say, well, we want to make sure that we don't even get close to work. But then before that, the commandments then began to become Well, we don't want you to even be tempted to work. So you could carry no tool that was a tool of your trade. So if you were a scribe, scribes couldn't carry a pen because you might be tempted to write something. And if you were a scribe, then writing was work for you. Or if you were a tailor, you couldn't carry a needle because you might see someone with a hole in their garment and you might be tempted to sew it up and that would be work. If you're a carpenter, you couldn't carry a hammer because you might be tempted to hammer something and that would be work. So you can't even be tempted to work. You can't carry a burden that was heavier than a fig. And if anyone knows anything about figs, if you've ever gotten a fig from the grocery store or from a tree, you know that a fig is something that doesn't weigh a whole lot. You could carry something that weighed up to a fig. But if it was more than a fig, death. Or, for example, you could throw something in the air as long as you caught it with the same hand you threw it. If you threw something in the air and caught it with the other hand, well, that's work and that's worthy of death. Do you see how ridiculous it starts to get? It starts to get quite absurd, doesn't it? Now, as we sort of giggle at that and just the ridiculousness, and we should find that ridiculous, the thing to remind ourselves of, that is always where legalism will take you. Rules without the spirit will always take you into a ridiculous place. And we probably all have examples of this very thing in our life. I remember an example from my grandmother. I love my grandmother. My grandmother was a godly woman, but she lived in a generation. That was, there was some legalistic things going on in my grandmother's generation. And one of those things was this. It was well known Nobody would dare take into my grandmother's house a deck of playing cards. You didn't do it because you knew that playing cards were not allowed in her house because playing cards were sinful and evil. But I also saw my grandmother enjoy many a game of Rook. Why could you play Rook and not have a deck of playing cards? Because of the Joker. I kid you not, because the two Joker cards are of Satan. They're evil. You ever heard this? Two generations ago, everybody knew this. The Joker cards were evil. And so that's why you couldn't have a deck of, you could have a deck of Rook cards. You see how whenever you have rules without the spirit of the rules, and by spirit, I mean capital S spirit, you always will end up in an absurd, ridiculous, unsustainable place because that's the nature of fallen humans. So these Pharisees, they own this day. This is their day. One day out of seven is theirs because they know the rules. They keep the rules and they are watching everybody like a hawk, especially if you lived in Jerusalem. They're watching everybody like a hawk to see who is maybe violating one of the thousands of rules that nobody could even remember, much less keep. So can you imagine what sort of power they held over people. And can you imagine what sort of a burden this day was for everyone? Under fear of death, if you got sideways with a scribe or a Pharisee, it wouldn't be very long before they could find a Sabbath violation that you were guilty of. So, one of the things that happens when we make our own rules like this is we have a way of figuring out how to skirt around it if it's our rules. That's, you always do that. If you are living by the rules, you will find a way around the rules, guaranteed. So the Pharisees did the same sort of thing. There was all these Sabbath violations, but all these Sabbath violations, most of them had clever sort of ways around them. For example, you know the whole thing about taking a journey, you couldn't go further than 1,999 steps from your home Well, then the question came up, well, what's what do you consider our home? Then they thought about it and they decided, well, the home is where you keep your food. So if you wanted, you could store ahead of the Sabbath, store some food in a certain place that was maybe, oh, I don't know, 1,990 steps. And then you could go to there and then take another 1,999 steps before you took a a journey longer than the 2,000 steps. You see? There's always ways around it when it's your rules. When it's rules without the spirit, the rules always get ridiculous and there's always ways around them. Or another sort of ridiculous one that'll all make, make us all kind of chuckle a little bit was you could walk all you wanted around your house. I mean, you'd have to count your steps inside your house. So, well, what was your house? What about buildings that were adjoining? So they, they decided, well, if two buildings are adjoining, then that's all one house. Well, what joins buildings together? So they decided that two buildings could be joined with a string. And for Sabbath purposes, that would be considered the same building. So literally on the Sabbath, in urban types of areas, you would have strings connecting the whole neighborhood. And that neighborhood would then be, for Sabbath purposes, the same building. You see where this always takes us? This will always take us into absurd places, with absurd ways around the absurd rules. Rules without the Spirit always end up being burdensome and absolutely unequitable. And this is the world into which Jesus stepped. So when they confront Jesus in the passage and they say, why are you doing what's unlawful? We need to be careful to understand the unlawful that they mean is not unlawful to God's law. They mean unlawful to these systems of laws. That's what they mean by unlawful. Jesus never violated one of God's laws, including his Sabbath law. But he violated all the time these man-made traditions that were added to the law. So now, verse 23, once again, one Sabbath. Now, one thing the Gospels have done is they have trained us, haven't they? Just like Pavlov's dog that whenever we see that word one Sabbath or it was a Sabbath or on a Sabbath day, we know what's coming, don't we? We, What's coming is a conflict because once again, the Sabbath regulations were that was the premium primary area of conflict because that was the area that was God's law that governed the maximum area of their life. That was what was the sign between God and his people. And that was where all of these rules really grew up around. So we know what's coming. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields as they made their way. His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So they're going through the grain fields, plucking heads of grain. If you're reading in the King James and you have that they went through the corn fields plucking ears of corn. What's the deal? Can the Bible not even get the, the crop right? We can't even decide what crop it was, was, right? So why corn and grain? Well, here's the answer. I had to actually actually dig a little bit this week to get to the bottom of this answer. Corn is the British word for what we would call cereal grains. I never knew this. Did you know this? Corn is the British word for cereal grains. So in the UK, if you use the word corn, you could mean grains, barley, or wheat. In American English, we don't use the word... We have a different word for corn or a different species of plant that we mean by corn, which is maize, right? So if we just think about it for just a minute, we know that the disciples and Jesus weren't walking through cornfields or maize fields because maize came from the North Americans. So there was no maize or corn, American corn, in Jesus' day in this part of the world. So we know it's not actual cornfields, but the British word for corn... The British word corn means cereal grains. I'm actually told now that that's sort of passing by, that, that the British, the, the UK English is being so influenced by American English that the word corn, that means cereal grains, is sort of passing off the scene. And Britons are, ado- are adopting the right way to speak English, which is to think of corn as maize. But this is, that's, that explains that for you. If your King James tells you, or an older translation, the 1901 authorized maybe, says corn and ears of corn, that's why. It's the same species, the same crop. So the uh, English standard calls it grain fields. So they're walking to the grain fields, and as they make their way, the disciples begin to pluck heads of grain. So they're walking on these pathways through the grain fields, and we might wonder why they're on these pathways through these grain fields. But remember, this was a time... That there was no highways or roads. And so through the grain fields would be walking paths, which gives us the proper context, by the way, for the parable of the soils. Remember the parable of the soils where there's the seed that scatters and some of it lands on the path, the hard packed path, because there'd be these large grain fields and walking paths through them. So they're going through this walking path through the grain field and they reach out and they pluck some heads of grain. Now, Luke's gospel tells us in Luke chapter 6 there that they plucked the grain. They rubbed it between, or the wheat or the barley, whatever it may have been. They rubbed it between their hands, and then they ate it. Then there was one more step involved, which not even Luke tells us about, but that would have been that they would have blown on it. So what would happen? They would have walked through. They would have grabbed some of these heads of grain. They would have rubbed it between their hands. And being ripe grain, that was uh, the same thing as uh, threshing. So they harvested it with their hands. They threshed it to remove the outer hole and expose the kernel. And then they would sort of blow on it to blow the chaff away, which was then winnowing. And then they would eat. Now, as the disciples did this, they weren't stealing. Jesus and His disciples weren't stealing another person's property because this was sort of the Jewish welfare system. This is how God designed His people to work in such a way that those who were poor were cared for. Because God would say in places like Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, that you may pluck the grain from anybody's field, the standing grain from anybody's field with your hand, but don't put a sickle on it, right? Don't don't bring out your tools and harvest their crop and sell it, but you can pick it with your hand and that was God's way of feeding the hungry, of feeding the poor, which tells us a great deal about the socioeconomic class of Jesus and His disciples, doesn't it? We should understand that that's probably all they had to eat on this day was pluck some of these heads of grain. They, They were poor, Luke tells us in his gospel that there were some wealthy ladies that financed, basically, they supported Jesus and his disciples because they seem to have no income. They're traveling around teaching and casting out demons and healing people and everything. Or, for example, we think of Jesus' words to the one who would follow him. Jesus says, foxes have a hole in the ground they can crawl in. I don't even have that. So this tells us something about the disciples at this period of time. This was a very financially strapped season for these disciples who used to be fishermen or, in the case of Matthew, a wealthy tax collector. They don't have anything to eat now. So they're picking some heads of grain and they're just filling their stomachs as best they can with this. And by so doing, they are doing this process of harvesting, threshing, and winnowing. And this is what the Pharisees are going to take exception to Verse 24, And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Again, lawful means according to our law, not according to God's law. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So notice the hardness of their hearts. Who cares that they're hungry? Who cares that that's all they've got to eat? I just don't like the fact that they pluck some heads of grain. I think we need to put these people to death. See the hardness of heart? You're already seeing this, this incredibly hard heart of these Pharisees. Why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Verse 28, and he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who are with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest, and the bread of the presence, which and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he gave it also to those who were with him. So Jesus then answers him. You gotta love Jesus', I don't know snarky sort of response. Have you never read? You expert in the law, you expert in the scriptures, have you happened to have read the part of scripture that addresses this? So you, you kind of hear that in Jesus's voice here. Have you never read this? And his answer comes from this story from 1 Samuel chapter 23. So to understand Jesus's reasoning, the answer that he gives, to understand this, we just need, simply need to understand a couple quick, easy things. One was from Leviticus 24, the principle of the bread of presence or the showbread. So what God said in Leviticus 24 was in the tabernacle, there was to be a table that was always present in the tabernacle. And on that table was to be placed 12 loaves of bread called the bread of the presence. And this bread was to be put in two rows of six, And it was to have frankincense on it. And what this bread represented was the 12 tribes. And it represented God's faithfulness, God's providence to His people, God's relationship, His communion with His people. That was the bread of the presence. And the bread of the presence, God said, remains on this table all week long. And on the Sabbath, you replace it with new bread and the priests eat the old. So God was caring for the needs of the priest at the same time. He was also maintaining this, this symbol of his covenant relationship with his people, of his providence towards his people. So this bread of the presence, God said specifically, it's not lawful for anyone to eat that bread but the priests. That's the priest's bread. So there was this instance in 1 Samuel 23. This is when David is fleeing from the increasingly insane King Saul who's trying to kill him. And David and his men who are with him are starving. They don't have anything to eat. So we see the parallel already. So they don't have anything to eat. So they go to where the tabernacle is. And the tabernacle at that time was in a place called Nob. So they go to the tabernacle and they go into the tabernacle and they say to the priests, we are starving. Do you have something for us to eat? They answer by saying, the only thing we've got is bread of presents, which is not lawful for you to eat. You know that. And David says, yes, I know that, but we're starving. So then the priests give them the bread to David. David David shares it with his men and they eat it. And then right after that, Saul comes and shows up, finds out David was there and they protected him and kills everybody except for one one person. So that's the story that Jesus refers to. And his line of reasoning is this. So the line of reasoning that Jesus uses, we could think of it like something like how much more or or, how much more would this be true? So follow the, the train of thought. Jesus is saying, if David, when he and his men were starving, violated... The law of God, the ceremonial law of God, and God did not rebuke him. How much more when one who is greater than David also is in need and he violates not the law of God, but yours. How much more will God not rebuke him? That's Jesus' line of reasoning. And so you see it now. How much more is it true if David ate the bread of the presence which God specifically himself said is only for priests, and God had no words of rebuke for him, how much more, when I violate one of your silly laws, will there be no rebuke from God towards the one who is greater than David? So this is his line of reasoning that he gives, and the point being that God, plainly from the text, plainly from the text, Jesus is showing that God cares more about human beings than His ceremonial law. That God will set aside His ceremonial law when it means the saving of human lives. That's clearly what Jesus is showing. And so Jesus is making the connection to the need that He and His disciples have and the fact that they are, air quotes, violating their law in order to provide what God Himself had said in His law is there for the poor. And so we see Jesus' line of, of reasoning there. Have you not read this? Now, verse 27, and he said to them, and this is the key. These two phrases right here, this is the key for the whole section. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God created man on the sixth day, and then God gave to man the blessing of the Sabbath, the gift of the day of rest. God gave it to man, And so Jesus says, God made the Sabbath for man and gave it to man. And so the Sabbath, follow the train of thought, the Sabbath serves man, not man serving the Sabbath. Because man's not given to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is given to man. Then the follow-up phrase, which is the clincher for the whole thing, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So what does Jesus mean by that? So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So if the Sabbath was given to man and the Son of Man, who is the divine Messiah, we made those connections in a previous message to Daniel 7 and what the Son of Man means Means it's the divine role of Messiah. If the Son of Man is fully God and fully man and the Son of Man is the King of His people, and His people that are given to Him are man, are humans, and the Son of Man is their king, then everything given to man is ruled over by the king. Right? That's Jesus' logic here. If the Son of Man is Lord over people, then what's given to people, He's Lord over that too. So His conclusion is, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, because Sabbath is given to man. And the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying, I make the rules for Sabbath, not you. I make the rules. I determine what's lawful on Sabbath, not you.